This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. These should all be available on all major podcast platforms now, pretty much as soon as they go live to the public. So hopefully all of this stuff is finally falling into place. There's still an iTunes issue, but I think it's iTunes related. I don't think it was ever actually my podcast service that I was using because even the new service, when I emailed them for support, said iTunes has been nuts for months. Roll the dice and hope that it gets back on that platform. So... I guess I could try deleting and redoing it on iTunes, but I could end up with the same exact problem. So uh, if anybody out there knows how to fix iTunes uh, podcast platforms, please let me know. But I'm pretty sure it's an actual Apple issue and not anything that I'm doing. But anyway, hopefully I've just made these easier for people to listen to. But either way, as always, let me know what you think. uh, And I would try to do as best I can to get everything up and running properly. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got. I guess I'll start out over on the YouTube support service. Scotter140 wanted to follow up on the conversation of having to reset phase every time they turn on their SNES through the open source scan converter. And they wanted to clarify that they'll, they'll set phase, save it, and it seems like they could probably even power cycle the OSSE and that's fine. It's when they go back to play the SNES and power cycle that, they have to reset phase. So I still don't understand why this is happening. And they did mention they did a de-jitter mod to it. So does anybody out there have a de-jitter mod installed into their Super Nintendo or I guess NES and use an OSSC with optimal profiles and set phase? And can you just confirm that that's not an issue? Because I never needed the de-jitter mod because I normally game only on CRTs. And when I do capture, I go through the OSSC, or I guess now the RetroTINK 5X, but I previously went through the OSSC into the Datapath card or the Datapath directly, which doesn't require a DJR mod, so I just never needed it. So I just, I think that's a pretty cool thing to follow up on just in case. I think it's good information to know. Uh, if the DJR mod is the problem, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think it's one of those pieces of information that we would all benefit from knowing. So if anybody uh, out there wouldn't mind double-checking for Scotter140 and for my own knowledge, uh, please let me know. I'll definitely check the comments on this one. Over on Floatplane, the importer wanted to clarify that last week they were talking about geometry on a CRT, and they meant... Why do things like rectangular dialog boxes look more like trapezoids on a CRT when they'll look normal on a flat panel? Um, And that's that could be two things. Um, And I'm sorry that I'm always so vague when talking about geometry and CRTs, but there's just so many factors that go into this stuff. So that could be um, optimal timings versus generic. So basically, CRTs are always four by three, at least four by three standard CRTs that you would use. And if you're playing in square pixels, that's going to make things look different. Um, In the RetroTINK 5X video, I show the sonic loop for the difference between square pixels and 4x3. There's a million other really cool examples out there. There's the moon in the Castlevania game and stuff like that. 
So if you're not talking about that, if you're just talking about things lined up the same, uh, geometry on CRTs is hard. That's just the best way I could put it. Um, it's really tough to get it right. Even with BVMs that have all of these extra calibration points, you could get it pretty much perfect and it'll eventually kind of go out. Whereas with the flat panel, it's always going to be perfect. So um, once again, I don't remember if I said this last week or in a different video, but I've kind of taken on the mindset of embracing the weirdness of a CRT as that's the experience I'm kind of going for. Now, that's just my personal opinion. I'm not telling you to not calibrate your CRT or anything. Just my perspective on it is if I have time, I will definitely try to calibrate a CRT to make it as good as possible. Especially for that, ooh, hit the mic, sorry. Especially for that stuff when, um, like, horizontal fast scrolling, uh, like Sonic games and stuff like that, where you kind of see the screen almost like a wave in front of you. Uh, that's the stuff that kind of bugs me. But curl up in the corners or not perfect geometry like that, that doesn't really ever bother me. Uh, it's only getting the geometry right so scrolling looks smooth and even then while it does kind of annoy me it for me it doesn't ruin the experience it kind of just helps me appreciate retro games on flat panels even more just in a different way so maybe someday with 8k tvs and you know future 8k scalers we can get a perfect representation of what a crt would look like with perfect geometry in the correct aspect ratio on a flat panel uh, but I just I don't think anything comes close now so I kind of embrace both whenever I use it so hopefully I added more perspective or maybe I just still didn't answer your question at all and if that's the case I'm really sorry I'm trying my best but it just geometry on CRTs is hard now switching over to Patreon, Lily Larceny said they think they're going to pick up a used Neo Geo board to make a consoleized MVS. The only arcade games they currently own are an original Simpsons cabinet, nice, uh, a Sega top skater cabinet, so they're short on equipment. They think their ultimate goal would be the digital HDMI mod, but those are sold out at the moment. So two-part question, do you think it's safe to pick up a used MV1C from a China-based seller on AliExpress or eBay? And two, what's the simplest way I could test the board when it arrives? Since they don't have a lot of arcade equipment to hook it up on, they and they don't necessarily want to buy a lot of stuff they won't ultimately need or use. Um, excellent questions. So a few answers to that. First, yes, totally safe to pick up MV1Cs from pretty much anywhere. Uh, just pick it up from a reseller that you could contact if there's problems. You know, eBay is fine for stuff like this. You know, don't don't abuse their support platform, obviously, but like. That's actually good for stuff like this. As far as testing it, um, if you plan on doing the HDMI mod, turn it on. That's pretty much it. Uh, if you don't have a super gun, you could probably just plug it right into your Simpsons arcade cabinet. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure those cabinets are wired up standard JAMA. You probably would only be able to use one player and a couple of the buttons, but for testing, that's totally fine. I use my Simpsons. I have a, the two-player mod on my Simpsons arcade board, and I use that on the same exact super gun I use on Neo Geo MV1Cs, so it should be no problem whatsoever. So I think just plugging it in and turning it on and you can get a geometry pattern that, that happens on all of these MV1Cs. That's actually also the pattern you see if a game isn't installed or isn't plugged in in the slot all the way. So that's the easiest way to test that part. You obviously won't be able to test things like um, audio or any kind of memory errors, which are kind of common on those these days. So if you have an MVS game, 
that would definitely be the best way. Just plug it into your Simpsons arcade cab, plug it into your MVS game, play it for a few moments using only two buttons or something, and that should be good enough. Uh, now, as far as the HDMI board, you're going to have to worry about a few different things. First, um, if you're installing it in a cab, cool, just install the HDMI board and now you have a great way to stream it. But if you're using it consoleized, you're also going to need some kind of super gun to plug into the front uh, to power it as well as to use your controller ports. So you basically, you're still going to need a super gun. You just won't be using the analog output, although you could. You could totally use dual output on that. Um, my favorite way, of course, is the OpenMVS, but you don't need that. You could just mod everything right into the MV1C's case, and you're good to go. Uh, it's not the prettiest way, but it's totally fine to do it. So that's kind of the basic overall suggestions. The only other thing to mention is that the I haven't talked much about the HDMI kit simply because they're not in stock, but resellers are in the process of getting them. So you'll see a video on that. That's actually when I went to tweet one of the live streams I just did. I accidentally tweeted the link to a draft of that video. So anybody who follows Twitter and clicked fast enough got to see a preview of that. But the only reason it's not live is just simply because every time I post a video and it has something in it that's not available, I just get hate mail for like a month after that. And I just don't want to deal with it. You know, no disrespect, but it's just the truth. It's being honest. So the video is absolutely ready to go. The HDMI mod for the Neo Geo is awesome. I was so excited about it. And yeah, I know you can get a mister and it looks just as good. And it's, you know, you could have all these features for less money, but there's just some people enjoy using original hardware. There's no right or wrong answer. There's just a whole bunch of right answers these days, which is great. So uh, if you're looking to basically, if you're looking to pick up an MV1C for the purpose of HDMI modding at some point, just do basic tests on it. The HDMI mod bypasses the audio. So even if for some reason you had a weird audio issue, you wouldn't have to worry about that if you were only using HDMI, because um, I think you're, the general problems with audio, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think the general problems are in the analog amp side. Uh, I know I had an MV1C that even with the pot all the way up, it was pretty quiet for audio. So uh, I gave it to a friend who's using that for an HDMI mod because you don't even need it. You can cut the pot right off. You're not using analog audio for that. Same thing, actually, even with the OpenMVS, because you're tapping the line level audio and sending it to the amp that T designed for it with the nice filtering in it. So uh, either way, I probably talked too much about this. I'm just excited about the project and I wanted to give a good answer. A couple of things from Chris B., First, they were following up with a question about an RGB-modded consumer-grade Sony CRT, and I guess they were having issues with sync alignment, and they found that running the sync through the S-video line instead of the composite video line seemed to align things better. Um, they also think that there was a ground issue, so it could be it could have been a combination of both, but that's something that Jose found quite a long time ago, is that sometimes if you RGB-mod a TV... So you're running red, green, and blue through the um, through the jungle chip that basically allows the OSD to happen. You need to feed sync somehow, and you usually pick an input to do that. So it's set to you know input one. So you feed sync through composite video there or whatever. And whenever, not whenever, but many times that Jose used composite video to feed sync, the image was shifted over. And when he switched to using the S video line. 
then the image was centered. So if I forgot to tell you that, I'm really sorry. Um, you know, I do all of these in real time because I, I really feel like these Q&As are more fun and more genuine if I just answer them like this. But sometimes I just forget stuff. So my apologies if I forgot to mention it. But either way, it sounds like you completely got it solved. So that's awesome. And I'm sure your TV is looking really great. Uh, another actual question, though, not just a follow-up. They have a nice RGB CRT setup with the consoles they care about, all using SCART. They've been kind of wanting to add a couple of light guns and to play some arcade-like gun games. There aren't any in particular they're looking to play, just some coin-op co-op shooters. Any suggestions on a good platform to look into? I don't mind spending some money. I really just want it to work the first time out. I don't want to buy an ecosystem just to find out some limitation and have to start over. Um, that's a really interesting question. I think that you would probably want to look into something like MAME on either a Raspberry Pi or a PC with light guns that aren't actually light guns. They're they're more like a computer mouse in a gun case with a USB connection. I've never really used those solutions, but I, I mean, I know a bunch of people that have and they seem to be pretty cool. There's a few other light gun solutions like the Sindin light gun, which supposedly is pretty accurate and fun. I haven't had a chance to test it yet. That's the one that requires the border around it. And you could, that's really designed for emulation as well. So I think I, that's kind of a, a question that I can't answer confidently because I haven't spent too much time. Now, there's also something for the Mister where you could use a Wiimote and, uh, you know, put it in one of those plastic gun cases and a sensor bar and connect that with Bluetooth to the Mister, and it essentially is a mouse as well. And pretty much anything that is a light gun game on the Mister would be able to use that. That's been sitting in a box right there for the past... I don't know, two years, year and a half or something, whenever Risha first taught me about it, and I haven't even had a chance to test it yet. So all of that stuff sounds really awesome. I just, I don't have any hands-on experience. So hopefully I added a little bit of perspective to it, but uh, that's something I would really like to visit in the future and, and go through everything and see what the best, or at least what many of the best solutions are. I have a feeling there's going to be many ways to do this that are awesome. So I would kind of just, start doing some research and seeing what you think's the best for your setup. Kirk wants to know if I have any recommendations for memory card solutions for the Dreamcast. No, but I really hope somebody comes up with some very creative solution for that. You know, something that maybe is micro SD based, so you never have to worry about losing saves. Something that potentially could be a bit more power efficient, so you don't have to go through batteries every three hours. I'm being a little silly, but still, I think anybody who uses a Dreamcast probably feels that pain. So uh, I don't know of anything. That doesn't mean it's not out there. It's just not anything that I've used before. But I'm really hoping that the community would step up and try to create something unique and different. Kind of like the Memcard Pro, but for the Dreamcast. Uh, even if it doesn't have an LCD screen, I would be totally fine with that but I don't know of anything in the works at all. So fingers crossed that somebody's considering working on it. Uh, and of course, if anybody knows any other solutions, please post in the comments, but there's nothing solid that I'm aware of that is a perfect solution for uh, Dreamcast VMU replacements. Adam Adam Ant has a couple of questions about the GC video-based GC Dual solution. So essentially, it's an audio and video mod for the GameCube that can get you HDMI and other signals. 
Now, all GC video-based solutions are digital-to-digital -digital mods. So if you have the plug-and-play HDMI solution, it's the internal digital signal that the GameCube generates that's converted to HDMI-compliant, so it stays completely digital, including the audio. That's uh, digital audio going through there as well. And all of the other solutions are th that do things like component video just have the digital-to-analog converter built in. So essentially, if you're looking for one or the other, you could, or I guess even both at the same time, you could just use a plug-and-play solution like the Prism, plug that right in, go from an HDMI out to your TV or an HDMI out to an HDMI to component video converter. Or if you wanted to, you can go HDMI to an HDMI splitter, one to your TV, one to a component video converter. So getting your solution that way is completely plug and play, and it's an excellent solution. It will be equal in quality to any internal solution. You mentioned the GC Duel that Castlemania sells that Dan Blackdog Tech designed, um, you know, based off of GC Video. That's a great solution if you want an internal mod. Uh, you mentioned, you know, questions about Blacktog discontinuing, but Castlemania selling it. Castlemania does everything by the book, let's just say. So if they're selling something, um, they contacted the original seller, you know, they've talked about it. There's no bootleg products coming from Castlemania. So no worries there. You're... Your decision really just needs to be, do you want a plug-and-play solution or an internal solution? And as far as performance goes, they're going to be completely identical. So the only other thing I would add is if you do get a plug-and-play solution, pick up or print one of those little braces that Todd from Retrofrog sells, and I believe posted the files as well, because it's a small difference, but it does take the pressure off of the HDMI connector. So, you know, you have the, let's say the prism plugged into the back of your GameCube and the HDMI cable could kind of weigh it down and put pressure on the inside of the, uh, the digital port. So this little brace sits there so you can't put as much pressure down. It's just a neat little thing. Um, but, you know, if you want an internal solution, cool. I, totally awesome, nothing wrong with it. I just feel like, you know, what happens if your GameCube dies someday? Now you have to take out your internal solution. Whereas this one, you just unplug the prism, plug it into another GameCube and you're done. So my preference is always going to be plug and play for reasons like that. But once again, if you're somebody like a streamer that needs, uh, needs to take as little with them as possible to events or to move around your house to different setups. So you don't want external adapters to deal with, then getting the internal mod done is probably a really good idea. Other than that, though, I would probably stick with plug-and-play solutions. And I'll drop links to everything um, right in this description. Now that we're doing timestamps, I guess it's easier to do that. So check the links for both the Prism and the adapter, and uh, or the brace, as well as the digital-to-analog converter adapters. Alan Rick said they've seen people ask about what VHS looks like on the RetroTINK 5X, and no matter how good it looks, it'll always still be what the VHS was recorded at. But what does LaserDisc look like? Has anyone done a LaserDisc comparison on upscaling? Uh, same exact scenario. So the best possible signal you're going to get from a LaserDisc is still a 480i composite video encoded signal. Um, that doesn't mean it's not going to look good when you scale it. It just means you have to have realistic expectations. So you could take a Blu-ray, encoded at 1080p, scale that to 4K, 
and it's going to look incredible as long as you have a decent player and a decent 4K TV. You know, turn off all those crappy settings and all that stuff. But you could have a 4K, or you could have a 1080p image that really looks 4K. It would take a pretty keen eye to really see the difference between the two. Whereas VHS and Laserdisc are always going to look like scaled 480i content. You could go back and buy what used to be incredibly expensive deinterlacers and scalers. Um, I've got the DVDO boxes that look great. Or you could use a RetroTINK 5X and just use Motion Adaptive, and it'll look very, very good. Just set the settings to soft. Or you could just buy a CRT and plug it into that. And I think that's always going to look best, or going to look the best to most people. But if you're asking about a scaler, you probably don't want to deal with a CRT. I just wanted to put that info out there for anybody listening who were was kind of considering doing either one. I mean, if you could find a 27-inch CRT laying around that only has a composite video input, and you plug in a VCR and a laser disc to it, it's going to look awesome. You know, all things considered, as long as their caps aren't all rotted out, as long as the TV doesn't have crazy burn-in, but all equipment in reasonable shape, it's going to look really good, because CRTs don't really care if something's interlaced or not. It draws it the same way, and it looks fine. Whereas on flat panels, you have to deinterlace and scale content that was originally noisy to begin with. So I'm not, you know, I just want to make sure I'm clear. I'm not telling people not to do that. I'm not saying it's a bad solution. I just really want to curb people's expectations. And one of the things when I first started talking about RGB monitors and people who had never re- even really seen one of these things before, you know, one of the things I heard a lot is, hey, I found one of those PVMs that you talked about. I love it for my video games, but holy crap, does my Laserdisc player look good on that? And it's like, yeah, of course, you know, it's it's what they were calibrated on back in the day. So I just kind of wanted to add some perspective for that. But I honestly think it would be a perfectly fine solution to check out all of these things. And I also think that messing around with scan lines with VHS and Laserdisc content could really add a different feel to things and, and possibly make it, depending on your eyes and your TV and how you how you look at this stuff, it could actually feel like a pretty darn accurate CRT experience. So I would just, if you already owned a Laserdisc and a RetroTank 5X, give it a shot and see what you think. Um, I don't know if I would say go out and buy a RetroTank, any of them, 5X, 2X, whatever, just for Laserdisc and VHS players. I actually think those cheap garbage composite to HDMI adapters that I say never use for video games are a perfectly decent solution for those um, just because that's kind of what they were designed for. But, you know, if you already are getting a RetroTINK 5X, it's worth taking your time to try it and mess with the scan lines and the settings just to kind of see the total look on your TV. Hayden Brown said they have an LCD Dell monitor that's 1280 by 1024 resolution, and they were interested in getting a Nintendo 64 hooked up to it via the analog VGA port. They saw my video from last year about gaming on VGA monitors, but was wondering if the methods I mentioned in that video are still the best in the present day, or if there's additional information or hiccups specific to the monitor or N64 they should be on the lookout for. So, a few things about that. First, that video was very specifically about RGB signals on CRT VGA monitors. So the purpose is basically to line double a 240p signal to 480p, add scan lines, and then turn up the brightness on your VGA monitor, assuming it's still in good enough condition to do so. And you'll end up with a CRT that looks pretty much like a PVM. 
depending on how far you go dialing in signals and how you want to set it up, it could look equal to a PVM or not quite as good, maybe like a lower end or beat up PVM, but still sharper than a consumer grade TV with composite video would be, which I always have to bring up the point that I think composite into a consumer or CRT or even an RGB monitor is awesome and a great solution. But you know, if if you're chasing the sharper picture, that's definitely a way to do that by using a VGA CRT monitor you could find on the side of the road sometimes. As long as the tube isn't too dim, you're good to go. So what you're asking is almost essentially like standard video game scaling because you're going to the resolution of 1280 by 1024. So if your monitor has a DVI port in it and uh, can accept digital signals, you might even just want to use a scaler connected to that. If you're only using a VGA port, you could use basic HDMI to VGA converters in order to get that in. So for your specific scenario, I think the easiest solution would would be to use a RetroTank 2X, either the Mini or the Pro, Connect your N64 via whatever is the easiest solution. Composite's fine on the N64. S-Video is sharper, and if you have an NTSC N64, you just plug it in. There's no worries about it. So anything that's not from Europe or PAL region would work fine. PAL, most can. You would probably just need to get the right cable for it. But basically, just plug it in. Run it through a basic HDMI to VGA converter, or if you have an, uh, a DVI input, just get an HDMI to DVI cable, and you're still letting the LCD panel scale it from 720 by 480 to 1280 by 1024. But at that point, if you're going for N64, you're probably going to want to turn on the smoothing filter on the retro tank. So you're going to get a soft, smooth image anyway. And if you want to sharpen it up, you could always try firing up uh, scan lines and seeing how that works. You could also do this with an open source scan converter or a GBS control. And in fact, GBS control has a 1280 by 1024 output resolution. You would just need to feed those the proper signal. So you could either do something like get a Core U transcoder and go from S-Video to Component and then go into either one of those. Or uh, you could RGB mod your console and use uh, you know HD retrovision cables and the GBS control. Or I guess if you modded it for SCART, that'll work too. But all of those solutions are great. They're just more complicated. Of course, you could always get an HDMI mod into your N64, as you mentioned. Although you still have the whole target resolution to worry about. The Ultra HDMI, I'm pretty sure, doesn't output 1280 by 1024, and I'm not sure if the N64 digital will either. So my suggestion to you would be, first of all, is this definitely the monitor that you want to use? And if so, try getting a retro tank and see what happens. If it's not the monitor that you want to use, or if you know if you're not if you have other choices, look into a CRT VGA monitor. Look into picking up a cheap gaming monitor. I mean, I, the HP one I show in all my videos was like hundred and ten dollars. It has one milliseconds of lag in the upper left hand corner, so like one point something. So overall, you're looking at a couple of milliseconds of lag, which should be considered zero for the purposes of just gaming. And, you know, you could use a bunch of different scalers on it that would be able to work like that. So that's kind of the overall viewpoint 
hopefully I'm able to point you in the right direction for what you would need. Uh, and sorry for the confusion about the whole VGA, CR, you know, RGB on VGA monitors. I tried to make it clear that I was talking about CRT VGA monitors, but there's so many acronyms. It's so easy to make that mistake. So no worries there. Curtis Singer has a question about using an Extron Crosspoint with their setup. And I think just to make acronyms and terms easier to understand, I'm going to skip reading the question and just go to the answer. I mean that respectfully, obviously. But in order to use Extron Crosspoints, at least the ones that I've used, you need to feed it C-Sync directly. You can't feed it uh, composite video as sync or Luma as sync. Um, and that's just a compatibility issue. That's not like a quality issue or, or anything like that. And regardless of what you feed it, on the output side, it outputs higher voltage sync. Uh, so the Extron Crosspoints are pretty robust systems. They're pretty durable and they're, they could take a beating. So getting the consoles into them is kind of on the easier side when it comes to worrying about extra terms and stuff. Curtis mentioned that they're, they got uh, console to BNC cables custom made from retro access. I have the Super Nintendo versions of those. They're great, high quality, and that should be perfect for pretty much everything. I think on PlayStation or PlayStation 2, if you're using RGB, you would need some kind of sync strip or circuit. In that case, I would go standard sync on Luma SCART cable to a SCART to BNC adapter with the sync stripper built in. And in fact, that's pretty much the only time these days I would recommend a sync stripper uh, in a basic setup. When you're talking about capture cards and crazy nerd stuff, it's different. But so overall, what you're going, uh, what you're going into the cross point has to be C-Sync and you have to make sure that's the cleanest signal possible. You don't have to worry about this with G-SCARTs. You don't have to worry about this with any of the scalers we use. It really is just an issue with Extron cross points. But coming out of that is where you have to worry a second time. Super, super easy solution, but you do need to check it. And the only thing you need to check it is like a $9 multimeter. You don't need any crazy equipment. But basically you need, I believe it's a 470 ohm resistor on the sync line anywhere in the cable that uh, that goes between the cross point and your SCART device, any SCART device. So if you're going from the cross point into an OSSC or any of the RetroTINK products or another SCART switch or something, I don't know why you'd want to, or a SCART TV input, whatever you got, um, anything that has a SCART input to it, you want to make sure that you feed it the lower voltage sync. So you would just need a BNC to SCART adapter that has that resistor in there somewhere. The easiest way to test is just touch the um, two points, uh, you know, the sync pin and uh, pin 20, and then the, the signal line of the sync line with a multimeter and see if it reads 470. If it just beeps as if there's no connection, like when you touch the probes together, that means there's nothing in there and you need to add one. But Super. I mean, it's got to be one of the easiest mods you could do. Just a little bit of patience, put it right in the scar head, whatever. And that's all you need. So in the context of this, you never have to worry about on the output side, C-Sync, Composite Video, Luma, the cross point will only output just plain old C-Sync at a higher voltage. So I, I wanted to over explain it to make sure that I, I put enough context in, not just for you, but for anybody listening who's using a cross point. Because basically the most important thing to take away from this is if you're going from a cross point to a SCART device, you need a resistor on the SCART line. Uh, I probably could have just said that, but I wanted to make sure to clarify. And I'm definitely going to be having a video, uh, hopefully soon. I wanted it out this weekend, but life's nuts. It probably won't be out for another week or two, but 
you know, what cables do you use for your retro consoles? I really want to make it so that here's the easiest solution for people just getting started. But on the other side of things, if you're somebody who already is taking the time to do a crosspoint setup, at the end of the video, probably the whole second half, here's the nerd reasons why all this stuff works like this. So not super expert and technical, not Steve from HD Retrovision level, but like us, people who, who want to know more than just buy that cable and plug it into this device. By the way, nothing wrong with that. If I didn't do this for a living, that would be my question to you is, I just want to enjoy a video game when I'm done with work. Tell me what cable to buy and what to plug it into when I'm done. Uh, but there are many of us out there that just really want to understand the other side of things. So I know I'm getting murdered in the YouTube algorithm for doing this, but I really like to have videos set up where, you know, fancy opening to try to catch people's eyes. Maybe I'll even throw in a scary news tease now and then. And then basic info that's everything that you need and then following that, here's a whole chunk of nerd information that you might not care about, so just shut off the video if you don't. Uh, I really feel like the people that that want to get involved in this stuff, that's why, or that's kind of why they come to Retro RGB to learn this stuff, because you could have a wide variety of, how do I get started? Why did I do this in the first place? Unfortunately, this is reason number one million why I don't call myself a YouTuber, because from a YouTube algorithm point of view, that's the dumbest possible thing I could do. I should be making that video two videos, you know, one beginner and wide spectrum on the main channel, and then have a secondary nerd, you know, retro RGB for nerds for the other one. But I don't, I don't want to make people subscribe to multiple channels. And I really don't like conforming to an algorithm that is just does nothing but but kill good YouTube channels. So sorry for bitching, but that's just an explanation as to uh, nothing to do with your question and a word vomit that I probably shouldn't have even included in here. <laughs> sorry, Curtis. But yeah, anybody who's interested, I'll have that cable video up somewhat soon. And, um, you know, if the beginning seems super beginner to you, just wait to the end. And all of these questions with visual examples hopefully will finally be clarified just to make things easier for people that just don't want to don't want to worry about composite video is sync luma is sync why are there two types of c-sync why is c-sync composite video sync and not composite video there's so many things that are annoying to worry about that hopefully i could clear up retro music dan was wondering if there's a modern alternative to the original n64 memory expansion that's an excellent question. I've used third-party alternatives before when people have lent me their N64s. Uh, I believe the Intech Gaming Warrior 64 came with a new one, but I don't ever buy those. I try to only buy the original ones because I have serious trust issues with electronics. But that is a good question. I'm wondering if there is a good, reputable reproduction of that out there. So if anybody knows of one, please post in the comments and also... If you could put any information as to why it's a good, reputable alternative. Respectfully, I bought one and it works isn't really the nerd answer that we all like to hear. We'd all like to hear specific reasons as to why and how to make sure that it is a good quality expansion pack and not something that uses the wrong voltage or something like that. So it's an excellent question that I don't have the answer to, but I'd certainly like to follow up. Uh, Dan also commented about the what I was talking about last week with my experience making the album. Um, to be honest, I would I really want to do a podcast about that someday, even if it's just on somebody else's channel who's in the music production world. And if, if you're one of those people, please contact me because I do think that if somebody were, were to hear my perspective and my experience, it might really help them moving forward. Because what I ended up with was an album that sounds excellent, that, you know, the 
person and people who produced it should be incredibly proud that they made that, but it's not the album I wanted. So I, I feel like I could have made something that I wanted that was actually cheaper um, if I had known what I know now. And at the time, there was really uh, no good place to get this info. YouTube wasn't what it is today. Uh, you know, these music blogs are, are just as bullshit as so many retro gaming blogs. Sorry to be negative, but it is the truth. And, it, you know, the advice that you get are from people that didn't actually go through it sometimes. They're mostly just speculating. So I would love to do that. I would love to get on a, a bigger channel that knows exactly what they're talking about when it comes to music production and just kind of go through and hear their thoughts on my perspective. And I really think that would help people who are out to to make their own albums these days. Um, even if even demos, that's the one thing I think we really nailed, um, which is even cheaper now than it was five years ago. But I think we were able to put out a demo that was just incredible sounding, especially because I'm, you know, I'm an old fart. So a demo from the 90s when I was a little kid first learning to play guitar sounds wildly different than the demos you could make today. So hopefully I could I could be in assistance with that. Learn from my mistakes, if you will. But so, yeah, sorry, I just completely detracted from your question. <laughs> the Remora has a couple of questions, and I'm going to skip to the answers because I just think that I would confuse people by reading through both. You'll see why in a second. I mean that respectfully. But basically, they picked up a used CRT that has an S-video input, which is awesome. And it sounds like, I'm kind of speculating based on the question, but it sounds like they have a full RGB or a full component video setup that's going into their RetroTank 5X. And they want to also be able to take advantage of the S-Video CRT. So what you would need to do in that scenario would be to split that signal before it hits the RetroTank 5X. And lucky for you, because it's S-Video, there's converters out there now that are already available that could do this. So the uh, the Ashenworks one, the one from LinuxBot 3000, I happen to have that sitting right next to me here, uh, these should all accept RGB signals in order to do that. Uh, component to S-Video might be a different kind of conversion, and it might actually be easiest to go component to RGB to S-Video, but that should work perfectly fine. There's still people working on RGB to composite solutions, but that's a lot of work, and I don't think it'll ever be as straightforward as RGB to S-Video. So I think for that, uh, as long as you had an RGB setup, it would be pretty easy. Maybe pick up a GSCART switch, get the SCART version of this from LinuxBot 3000 or from Ashenworks, uh, or I guess if you could make your own, hand make the one that Mike Chi posted the design, and then one output of the GSCART goes to this into the CRT, the other goes into the RetroTINK 5X, and there you go. Um, the question that the Remora had was about potentially splitting the HDMI output of the RetroTINK 5X, but what you would need to do at that point is split the output, downscale the HDMI signal, and then convert that to S-Video. So that's really complicated, way more expensive than the solution that I just said. It will probably add a bunch of lag. It's definitely not the way you want to go. Whereas going RGB to S-Video before it hits the retro tank, as I demoed in that video last year or something, uh, you could even use light gun games and, RG uh, and 3D glasses. So that's definitely the way you want to go for that. Um, the only confusion would be is if you have component video and not RGB, but maybe LinuxBot will integrate something like that in, in a future product. Uh, also, the Remora wanted to potentially recommend a UPS for uh, an uninterrupted power supply for people who worry about power in their setups. The problem with using UPSs, they're great for PCs, but you sine wave uh, versus 
pulse wave i'm forgetting off the top of my head right now but you want to make sure it's a good quality ups so what i've actually been using are those apc power conditioners that renee from db electronics uh, or now db music suggested that uh that is cheap it's like 50 bucks and that's a really good power protection. And I think, uh, you know, you have to check the full power draw of your setup. But even if you have a million things plugged into a million power strips, if you're only plugging or if you're only powering on three or four things at once, you could run everything through this one little device. That could be your main kill switch. And you, uh, it could also protect against power surges and stuff like that. So I'll drop a link to that in there as well. Um, but you know, thank you for the recommendation, but I always want to be extra careful when I talk about power just because I've been burned many times, literally and figuratively. Yepo said that they just had to rewire their setup and now audio and video are not in sync. Since the time sleuth measures video lag, do I know of a solution to measure audio lag? Well, there's two types of audio lag. There's the one that's constant. So very commonly you'll get an AVR where the audio doesn't really line up. And there's very basic ways to check this. You could use test software. Um, you could just, you know, use a recording device. But basically, most AVRs have a button that either, you know, delays or speeds up the audio based on what you need to, where you need to line it up in the signal chain. And that's really it. It's just a constant delay that you need to make sure lines up. And there, I would just do some Googling or, or pick your favorite video game that you know inside and out. And, you know, you know that when you press that button in Sonic, there's like half a second delay before you hear the jump sound and just line it up by ear and kind of go from there. But the other kind of delay uh, you normally find in capture cards, not in setups like this, where the variable audio delay. So the audio at the beginning of your stream or capture will be lined up differently than at the end. And that's something that I don't really have a lot of experience in or ways to fix it. There are some experts that have been able to to go through ways to to resync and line things up. And, you know, it ranges from really easy to incredibly challenging to do so. But for me personally, I normally do captures that are less than five minutes long. So for me, it either the audio is way out of sync immediately or it's always in sync. So it's been pretty easy for me to do that stuff. Um, as far as my live streams go, if I have had variable audio latency, it hasn't been so much that it it harms the stream itself. So I don't have much to offer there. But if you're running through a setup where you have a bunch of retro game consoles and a bunch of modern game consoles all plugged in through a scaler into an AVR into your uh, flat panel TV, maybe a CRT alongside it or something, and you're having sync issues with those, that should be a fairly easy fix. Um, I hope. I, it always has been for me. So I would try to determine exactly the the latency difference. And one thing that you could always do if you have the ability to set up a camera, you know, uh, do the jump test where you just jump in your favorite game and then slow the footage down so that you see when the character jumps and how many frames in the footage until you hear audio. And then just do this like a Sega Genesis directly connected to a CRT with speakers and then do it again in your setup and see the difference. Maybe do it five times each. And you don't need crazy equipment to do that. You could, you should be able to do that with a cell phone if you have a, a DSLR or a mirrorless or something that's probably better. But that would be an easy way to figure that out. So, you know, you 
jump three times in a row, let the video play for five minutes, jump three times in a row, and then slow those down at the beginning and the end. And if they're all the exact same or within a frame uh, of difference, then you should be able to just move that to line up properly versus the CRT. But uh, the short answer to your question is I don't know of any device that'll do that for you, like the Time Sleuth would for video. It's probably going to be a little bit more complicated. But hey, as always, if anybody knows of audio lag testing devices, please post below and I'll certainly be interested in checking them out. Coin Retro wants to know if they get a Datapath E1S capture card, what's the best way to capture video and audio of a mister? That is luckily a very easy and very cheap answer to your question. The best way to do this by far is to get a device that splits audio from the HDMI device, both for the purpose of splitting audio and for the purpose of normalizing the signal into your data path. It doesn't add lag, it doesn't change the signal. I've tested it to make sure it doesn't compress colors or change color space or anything like that. Uh, I have links to the one that I use in the Amazon store. I'll post a link here. But basically, you'll want to go from the HDMI out of the mister to the HDMI in of this cheap little box, get a basic HDMI to DVI cable, the shortest one you could find to go into the data path, and then from that side, break out the audio to whatever you have. Uh, if you just have analog audio input, you could break that out from this box too. If you have the ability to get some kind of digital audio recording solution, which I have a, a blue box here that I've bought two over the years. Firebrand X suggested it to me. The first one I bought was junk and didn't work. The second one has been flawless. Zero problems with it ever since. So uh, if you have an extra few dollars to spend because it was very cheap, you could get a full digital capture. And that little blue box even handles odd audio refresh timings, which uh, I don't think you have to worry about that with the mister, but in case you ever wanted to do like Super Nintendo or Saturn optical mods directly in. So overall, it's not, you know, it's not a free solution, but unlike many other things in video capture, you don't need to completely reset your setup. You basically just need two other little boxes and a free, you know, two cables and a free USB port on your computer. So uh, I'll leave links to everything here. If one of them's out of stock, try to find, or the audio box sometimes is out of stock. So try to find the exact equivalent to it somewhere else, but I'll drop links to everything you need. And that's exactly what I've been using. And it's awesome. The only thing to add to that is uh, check out the virtual dub two capture page. I just posted. I had like 10 days worth of captures work flawlessly. And then as soon as I switched over to capturing Neo Geo, everything's out of sync now. And I had to go back to using Amarek. So I haven't figured out what the heck that problem is yet, but hopefully on your setup, Amarek and virtual dub two should be able to be between the both of them. Perfect. Uh, and with VW, it's very easy. Just do a test one or two minute recording and if the audio and video go crazy by the halfway point then you know it's not working and if it doesn't then it should be a perfect solution where you get really awesome uncompressed captures so uh, check the links for everything that you need a couple of questions from monty first what was the first commercially available rgb monitor that's a very interesting question, kind of neat, and it's not something I have an answer to. And there's also a lot of caveats that go with that. Like, you know, are you talking about something that was used by labs that technically was commercially available? Or are you talking about something that you could walk into Radio Shack and purchase? And as far as RGB 15 kilohertz monitors go, were you talking about uh, things like the monochrome ones? Or are you actually talking about full color ones? 
So I think it's a really neat question. I have no clue what the answer is. I just know that I've seen Sony PVMs with uh, manufacture dates that were way earlier than I would have expected. So that's kind of a fun question. Um, the next is, how do you combine RGB HV? So, you know, the standard RGB signal, even if it's 15 kilohertz, uh, but outputs sync separated into horizontal and vertical into RGBS, the standard RGBS connections. Um, any Xtron devices are definitely a good way to do that. Keep in mind that uh, you might want to double check what the voltage is of the sync output, as well as what your, uh, your monitor would accept, because many PVMs accept a wide range of voltage and you just don't have to worry about this stuff. Whereas certain other monitors, you have to feed it the right voltage or you could blow it out. So always check your service manuals and stuff like that. Uh, another question that you posed specifically for the mister. Um, so the mister's IO board could output RGBS, even though it's a D sub VGA looking connector. All you have to do is set the INI file and then use any in your case, at least, VGA to BNC cable. And very often, the five BNC cables, RGBHV, are the only ones available. That's totally fine. Just leave the other one unconnected or, you know, maybe use some non-conductive tape and tape it back onto the cable so it doesn't flop around and hit anything. But that's perfectly safe and good to use. Um, the only thing about the Mister's output is it outputs TTL level sync on that sync line. So if you're running into your monitor... It could be fine. Once again, check your service manual. But if you're running into a SCART device, you need to make sure that there's a resistor on that line. Same with the Xtron cross points that I talked about before. I definitely have another video coming out about this soon. I'm probably going to release it about the same time that these things are up for order because this is the solution to that 100%. So uh, I'll figure all this stuff out and get it released soon. But this just as a generalization, make sure that if you're going RGBS output, if you're going into SCART equipment, you're definitely going to need to make sure the voltage is dropped. And if you're going into a monitor, check the monitor and see if it could accept that the higher voltage sync or not. Hector Santana said they just picked up a Japanese 3DO and they were told they should get a step-down transformer to change the voltage. If so, would it be possible to just swap out the stock power supply with one for the U.S.? So I'm always hesitant to give power advice, but I can certainly give generalizations in this point that would help. The internal power supply in many consoles can possibly accept multiple input voltages. Some cannot. And in fact, it's not as easy as saying, you know, model X of this console can always do it. You really need to open it up, check the power supply and see if there's any markings on it or anything like that. Some power supplies you'll see right on it, like, you know, 100 to 240 volts or something. And others say 120 volts only on it. Others, you just have part numbers and you have to look and see if anybody's figured that out. So while I would never tell anybody, just plug your console into the wall and see what happens, I would be comfortable saying pop the top off and check to see because maybe you do have a power supply that is compatible with multiple voltages. If not, it you should be able to swap it out with a US one. Theoretically, if all of the pins are the same, if there's no differences on the uh, the other side of the console, but that's again something I would research on a console by console basis, and you know try to get more than one source just in case, unless somebody's you know put it on power testing equipment and stuff like that. So, and of course the other thing to do is if you know for sure you have a Japanese console, you can use a power converter, but. 
if you don't have to, there's absolutely no reason to. Uh, you know, for example, I have a bunch of RGB monitors that could be plugged into pretty much anything, so you would never need to worry about it. And in fact, even the external brick that Avram chose for the OpenMVS project, um, you know, the DC output's always the same. It's got that same PC-style input, uh, but you just then need to buy the line cable for whatever wall you have, and it could accept all voltages as long as just the $2 cable is the correct one. So maybe the 3DO is multiple voltage, maybe it isn't, maybe it varies per model, or maybe there's 20 different power supplies and you have to check. But either way, I would just kind of open it up and try to do some research for that specific one. Another question from Adam, Adam Ant. They said that when making high quality shielded cables by hand, which is really hard by the way, but uh, do you have to ground the shield on one end, both ends, or neither end? That's an excellent question, and I don't know the definitive answer or if there is a definitive answer to this. Because if you're talking about a SCART cable, it's very common that each of the grounds for each of the video signals have their own separate lines. So have you connected all of those? Um, what about the target device? What about the source device? So it really is a question that could be answered by a total setup. And I know I've seen them, I've seen the, uh, many cables where the shield isn't connected at all on either side, and they're they perform flawlessly with no problems whatsoever. So I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, I think depending on your major setups, I would kind of try to figure out what they all do and, or maybe just even tweet at some of the bigger cable ma manufacturers and ask what they do just to see. But I know for me personally, I've absolutely tested stuff, at least in the context of SCART connectors, where the, the outer shielding wasn't grounded to anything but they were shielded cables and the audio had its separate ground line internally the video had it and it it was flawless so it's a good question and i just don't really know the answer or if there is an answer that could be generalized like that you know for all i know because uh, i've never used a scart tv other than the one random tiny one i have here so maybe that's part of the scart standard I would kind of do a little bit more research and ask what other people have done, but I know at least in basic, I'm transferring RGBS and audio scenarios. I don't think I've needed it. Schwink said they have a PlayStation with an X station installed and a MemCard Pro for saving, and they want to know if they use a Brooks wireless adapter on top of all of that, would they be drawing too much voltage from their PlayStation 1? That's an excellent question. Uh, I've been doing all my testing with a, a PlayStation 1 Digital, an X-Station, and a MemCard Pro, and it doesn't seem to have any issues whatsoever. And I'm kind of guessing that the X-Station draws less power than the CD assembly. So while I don't want to give a definitive answer, I'm going to say probably it's fine. But one thing that you should definitely keep in mind is I've, without a doubt, seen people install, you know, all of this stuff and start having issues, and they found out that their power supply was already going bad, and that they kind of just started to notice it now. So if you wanted to be really sure that your, your PlayStation was safe, I would recap the power supply on it, which isn't too hard. If you have a desoldering gun, it should be pretty easy. As long as you don't do it plugged in, it should be pretty safe. So I would do that if you were concerned of any kind of power issues. Um, and I guess I would kind of just check with uh, with people who have been doing X-Station installs or maybe jump right on uh, the discords that they have and see if anybody has any insight. But my guess, and once again, just a guess, is that all of this stuff together probably draws less than just the CD assembly when it's spinning. So you should be completely fine. 
But I, if you're concerned, I would double check. For me personally, I always try to recap the power supplies in any units that I'm installing a bunch of these mods in, just because I think it's good practice. You know, a 30-year-old console, if it doesn't need a cap replacement, it's certainly not going to hurt to do it as long as it's done right, of course. Jason Guffey said they got a RetroTank 5X and just purchased a Tendak HDMI to VGA converter from the Amazon Links page. It claims to support 720p and 1080p, but it has no mention of 1200 or 1440p. Will it still support these modes from the RetroTank 5X, or will I only have access to the 1080p letterbox mode? That's a great question. I don't know the answer, but I do know two things that would be relevant. First, those converters... Uh, I've used them with resolutions that were not specifically listed on their specs page, and they were fine. I've used them with 240p, and that's definitely not listed. And I believe I even used it with 480i, and everything worked fine. So I would worry more about the VGA CRT monitor at that point. And if the specs say it'll receive up to 1440p, I would say it's com- you should be confident just trying it and see what happens. I would not give it a try if it's a monitor that's specced at 1024 by 768. I certainly wouldn't start feeding it higher resolutions with any converter, but I'm pretty sure it would be completely safe to just, you know, maybe set the retro tank to 1080p have it working through this setup and then try the other two resolutions. And if it works cool, if it doesn't just unplug the thing right away. And I don't think I can't imagine there would be any safety issue with your monitor. So good question, but uh, I'm pretty sure this is a safe scenario. Next, Jason said, speaking of the Amazon shop, how exactly do the affiliate links work? If I click on your link, but add them to my cart and save it, does Mr. Bezos know I used your link? If I buy the item a week later, does the affiliate link only work if I buy the item immediately? I buy a lot of these converters and cables anyway, so I figured you should get the support. Well, thank you so much for asking that question at all. Um, Everything that I do inside the retro gaming community is completely free. All the videos, all the, the support for different developers and stuff like that. So the only way I'm able to pay my rent and put food on the table is through affiliate links and support services. And people seem some people seem to hate that, uh, but it is what it is. Your choice is either accept that that's what I use or I quit and go do something else. I, I mean that respectfully, and it's obviously not directed at you. So, But I just kind of wanted to clarify that, that it is very important... Um, and I really appreciate when people like you take the time to ask these questions. The unfortunate answer is I have no clue and rules change all the time. I think that if you click on it and add it to your cart and buy it a week later, it should be fine. The metadata should still be in there. But a good example is eBay. eBay's affiliate program has changed a hundred times. They are the worst company to work with. They have cut the payment system down a giant fraction as to what it used to be. They changed the rules. They changed the, the way things are calculated. Um, it's it's kind of at the point where I used to look into it to try to see what best practices were, but it changed so much with eBay. I just threw my hands up in the air and say, what you know, whatever. The other side of things, too, is depending on what affiliate program you use for different stores, sometimes when you click on the link, the little tracking code at the end disappears after the page loads. Other times it stays up. So does that mean one of them's working correctly and one isn't? Or does one service just do that? I don't know. So I, um, I never, ever require affiliate links, but I always use them if they're available. You know, there, there was a product that I was part of the design team on that I actually ended up spending 
a lot of money on, probably a couple grand by the end of it, because it was very important to me, just something that I, you know, something that I really liked. And it just so happens that the stores that sold it didn't have affiliate links. So I just, you know, I just kind of cut my losses and thought, all right, well, at least this is a cool product to get out to the retro gaming community. I'm glad that it's out there. You know, hopefully other developers will take note in other stores and they'll work with me on this and add an affiliate link. Uh, So it's, you know, it's one of these things where it's never required, but it's always appreciated, especially if I was one of the ones dropping 100, 200 hours in development. Uh, It's the only way I would get paid from it because I never accept money to be in part of any of these because I I just want everybody to feel like everything's equal. I mean, I'm I'm a human being. So like if I love one project and like another, obviously I'm, you know, I'm going to obsess over the one that I love because that's, I'm a nerd that does that. But uh, as far as sales go, you know, everything that I link to would be there anyway with or without the affiliate code but it is super appreciated. So if you're a store uh, that doesn't have one, you know, maybe consider that for people that take a tremendous amount of time to promote and review this stuff. I know I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here, but people who don't do any of this for a living or don't spend enough time doing it, look at it as scraping off the top. And it's not anybody that's ever put any effort into a review or support or development of a product knows that that's ridiculous. The three pennies that you get on an affiliate code, while it adds up and it's important, that's, you know, that's not skimming off somebody else's sale. That's kind of earned. Sorry for the tangent. Last question. Uh, I've shown a couple times recently that I have an upcoming VGA to SCART converter. Uh, Should be ready soon. How is this one different from the VGA to SCART that Mike Chi designed that already exists? Um, I don't know if it is. Uh, I, I have that one somewhere. I think I turned that one into a device that I used to test lag. Uh, but I think it's the same style sync combiner. Um, I, I sent this to Mike to double check and to look at and everything. And he, uh, I believe he gave it his blessing. And it might even be based off the same basic circuit. So it could be the exact same thing. This one's uh, based off of the circuit that Steve from HD Retrovision wrote and posted um, on a guest post on Retro RGB. I've tested the heck out of this, and it, it seems to be pretty great. And I think Mike's worked identical. So it might even be the same, the same circuit. The only difference between these two, the only real difference that matters to anybody listening, is that these would be able or will be up for sale from reputable resellers and manufacturers fairly soon. Um, they're going to have a case that's kind of similar to the SCART coupler, also made by Greg. So just, you know, imagine these two devices combined, basically. like, uh, And you'd be able to just click a link and buy them and plug it in, whereas Mike is not selling those at all. I'm pretty sure. I'm 99.9% sure. Mike, I believe, just posted that design as, hey, here's something I made up that you all might benefit from. You know, Here's the freeware design. Use it or don't, but it's out there for anybody that needs it. So I honestly think that's the only difference. Now, this will be open sourced too, uh, and Mike's, this is going to be, you know, exactly as you see here, a small little device, whereas Mike, it, Mike's is on a board, so if you were looking to mount this somewhere, Mike's actually be better might actually be better simply for that because it's a bigger board. There's lots of empty space, so even if there aren't holes, you'd easily be able to drill some holes and use that for mounting somewhere. But if you're just plugging this into a switch or into a SCART device or something, the smaller one might be better for you because you could plug it directly in. You don't need extra cables or anything like that. So the the answer is how is this one different? 
I, I think it's just going to be form factor and one you have to make your own, whereas the other one should be available from stores. I, th- I think that's the only one. But uh, stuff like this, you know, the more the merrier. We open source the design for the SCART to uh, the DVID, the SCART cleaner years ago. And I know people have um, have been switching that one around. That was designed very specifically for use with data path cards, but people had found different ways to integrate it in other setups, change the DVI connector to VGA, stuff like that. Um, but th- that was the opposite direction, obviously. So, uh, you know, I, I really think that as long as they're built correctly and they use circuits that are uh, are properly laid out, like mics and like this one's, you know, there's plenty of room for anybody who wants to make this stuff, and they they should all be similar in performance, if not identical. But hopefully, when people start making their own uh, of these, they'll they'll look at form factor and try to find different and creative ways to to design it. I mean, if we have ten different ones of these, that's just confusing people and you know diluting the market. But if we have ten one ten of those that are each different sizes, shapes, slightly different connectors, that's a help in my opinion. So we'll see, but. All right, I think I rambled on too much. Hopefully I, I got all the info for all your questions. Bradley wants to know how people in the retro gaming scene can help newcomers better understand SCART. It could be very confusing, and even though they have a good understanding, they often have difficulties explaining it well. Just figuring out the right cable can be difficult and overwhelming for newcomers. Couldn't agree more. I'm going to have a video out as soon as I possibly can. I'm aiming for this weekend, but considering that it's Friday afternoon already and the script is only 80% done, probably not a chance. So maybe next weekend, but uh, I'm going to have a video really beginner focused on this stuff. I rambled about it before, so I won't repeat myself, but I think from the perspective of people listening, watch that video. Let me know what I could have explained better. I'll edit the page on the website to clarify things and then just help promote that video and the page on the website um, and kind of go from there. Uh, I just think it's something that's so hard to articulate without visual examples. And some people prefer some visual examples over others. So I really want to try to encompass all of this in a video that's aiming to be under 15 minutes long because more than that, most people probably wouldn't watch. So Cross your fingers, hope I pull this off, and if I fail miserably, let me know how I could improve, and maybe I'll do another one or do it a different way. I think that's one thing that that I've learned that I originally looked down upon, but I actually think is now, now after living through this, I think is a benefit, where you do multiple videos on the same subject that are slightly different. You know, space them out, don't put them all, I wouldn't release three videos in the same week about the same thing, so I, I don't think it's harmful to do multiple videos about the same thing, uh, as long as they're from different subjects. I know there's uh, some people have been taught because of YouTube algorithms to beat a subject to death because, you know, and get more subscribers, but that's, that's not how I roll. So, uh, if I put this video out and you think everybody thinks it sucks, I'll delete it and start over. If I put it out and people, some people think it's good and some people don't, provide feedback and I'll make another within a couple of months or something like that. So I hate to spin this into self-promotion, but basically the only thing that you could do, especially on a place like Twitter where you're limited to 240 characters, you can't be expected, you or anybody, including me and everybody else, can't be expected to go through and explain all of the little nuances. And that's why there's so much misinformation now. Because when when somebody like a developer and a product maker gets up and vents their frustration about something, 
a whole bunch of other people read that as, oh, so this thing is bad. It's not bad or it might not even be good. It's just the situation they're talking about was frustrating and I don't blame them. So hopefully I could encompass all of this into a very simple video. So I'll stop word vomiting on it now and get to making it. <laughs> Kayak wants to know where they could get information on how to make their own cables. Uh, I guess the question was sparked by the Actionworks Supergun review that I did. And it really depends on exactly what your source and target device is going to be. So in the case of the Ashenworks Supergun, I would say if you're looking for SCART, get a VGA to BNC cable, cut the ends off, wire that into a SCART connector, wire in an audio jack, and then make sure that there's a resistor on the uh, sync line and you're done. Uh, for consoles, that's a, a whole other can of worms that you may or may not want to open up. For custom setups, it's the same thing. So you would first want to start by figuring out all of your source devices and your target devices, then figure out what your source devices require in the cable to make sure the signal is properly set for what the target device wants to receive. Um, I, I would never want to discourage anybody from a new learning project, but I would definitely say that if, if you were going to do this on a one-off, like for the Ashenworks Supergun, go for it. It's going to be pretty easy. You're probably going to have to do it twice if you've never made cables before. I mean that respectfully. I'm just saying. Um, but that should be pretty cool. But if you say I have 10 consoles that I want to build custom cables for, I would really recommend thinking about another solution because it's going to be a ton of work, a ton of research, and you may or may not even be able to pull it off depending on where you get your connectors from, if there's room to add components, etc. So... Uh, I, I tried to, to make my answer positive, but I have to also add some caution to this just because I know how much time I've thrown away trying to make cables. And it was always at the end of the day easier for me to just find some and buy them. Uh, also, thanks for your suggestions about the social media stuff. I still got to figure that out. I don't know if I'll be able to pull it off, but who knows. Jonathan Warren said, now that the RetroTank 5X has a light gun border, how long until there might be a semi-simple solution to play light gun games for NES, SNES, and other consoles? Um, that's a tough one to answer because a bunch of work would need to be done. So remember things like the Sindon light gun work by using a USB interface into software emulation. So to use that with original consoles, you're going to need something that translates the signals back and forth from the gun to the console and vice versa, as well as whatever is required to use that gun. So since the RetroTINK 5X has the border, you know, you flip that on and now you don't need to worry about generating a border anymore, but you still need to translate the signals. And that would be 100% up to Andy Sinden on if or when he wants to do that, or up to other people that want to use that or other methods to do it. So I have no idea what the length of time would be. And for all I know, somebody else is going to have a different solution released and available to purchase before the Sinden light gun adds this functionality. So unfortunately, it's an impossible question to answer, but I do agree that it would be very cool to have something like that because playing light gun games on a giant modern flat panel would be pretty neat. Lastly, Alan Bingham had a question that disappeared from Patreon, which is something that's been happening lately, and it's really annoying, and it's not consistent. 
but basically people will respond to a post. It looks like it's there, and then the response disappears, either right when they refresh the page or they come back next the next day or something. So I'm really sorry if that's happening to anybody. I, I certainly don't delete any posts out of any of the support services. I mean, you know, crazy one-off situations, but I message the person and, and talk about it. It's usually just because somebody posted something in the wrong spot. Uh, but in a case like this, I would never have done that. So it's got to be some bug with Patreon that happens now and then uh, hopefully they'll fix it but to answer alan's question why do so many power cords for older consoles have a massive brick for a wall plug when later consoles typically only require a normal sized wall plug so i believe the question is why do some old consoles have this and then some just have this a basic cord and I'm pretty sure the reason for that would be when you have something like a wall wart, you do the AC to DC conversion in this brick, and then you just have the DC on the outside. So all of the consoles were designed with whatever this exact barrel plug size and, or, um, and positive negative orientation with the exact voltage. So the consoles are all made exactly the same, and then you only adapt these for different regions. And at the same time, uh, if you have this die, you just buy another one and you don't even need to touch the console. So I actually think this is a great idea. I'm, uh, I still kind of think this is a good way to go about stuff. But the other side of it is I imagine once the Tower of Power hit and people were trying to jam three of these massive power bricks into a, a, a surge protector and it can't even fit, people complained so much that they said, okay, well, we'll just put the power supply internally. And while that's very good from the fact that now you just end up with one of these and this will work, you know, for any region, uh, at least the AC side, you just have to work at a cable. Now on the internal side, as a company, do you need to make a power supply for each region? Do you make an internal universal power supply? Does that generate too much heat? Is that good in the long term? Because, you know, externally, you don't have to worry about heat. What happens when it dies? Do you have to open up the console? Whereas, you know, you just get a new brick. So I'm always a fan of the external bricks. And I assume people started integrating them just because it would probably, it would look cleaner and because of everybody complained from the old ones. But it's just, I, I think it's good practice, especially for small hobby projects to have it externally. And in my experience with the computer design stuff, we made medical grade computers and having an external brick meant that we just contacted a company that made external medical grade power supplies and that was it. Whereas on the models that we had to integrate the internal power supply, that got super complicated, still complying with all of these certifications. So I'm a big fan of external for a, mil a million of those reasons. Um, but also the newer bricks uh, use a more efficient technology so they could be a lot smaller than the originals. So that's why I always link to the triads. I'll put a link in the description as well, because not only are they a new power supply that, you know, brand new, so they'll probably last a long time. They're smaller um, and, you know, you could get them cheap pretty much depending where you get them, they could be cheaper than the originals. I just think that's a good replacement. And I think it's a good way to go about doing this stuff. Because if you have a power supply that's aging, yes, you could pop it open. Some you can, some you can't. You could replace the capacitor, hope that fixes it. But I, I'm just a fan of getting these triads. And you can get them internationally too. So you could buy one and use it for multiple different power, uh, you know, AC power sides. So I'm pretty sure that's why. I think they just wanted to integrate it inside to streamline it. But 
there's a lot of downsides to doing so, and I'm a big fan of the power brick. And in fact, even the one that Avram decided to integrate or in, to include with the OpenMVS is slightly different style. So it's DC output, but with just the AC jack on the other side. So that way you could, uh, and that one is a universal power supply. So you could plug that into anything, regardless of what your your country's power system is. So definitely a fan of those. Um, the only other question Alan had, they have a couple of TVs uh, in their nerd cave, a CRT and an HD LCD, and they're trying to get everything located and organized on their shelf. And they're wondering if to save space, they're able to take their classic edition consoles and put it on top of their uh, eight input HDMI switch. They specifically were looking to know if there's any interference or electrical issues that are going to happen with that. And my only concern in that situation is heat. So I strongly doubt there's going to be any uh, interference at all from the HDMI connection of those consoles to the switch or any kind of RF or power interference. I don't think you're ever going to see anything and I don't think there's any danger. However, how hot does that switch get? And, you know, does the heat of the switch heat up the classic console? It's my guess that it should probably be fine. Uh, whereas things like cable boxes, definitely I would never do that. Um, I feel bad for anybody still stuck using cable. I know for certain regions, uh, especially in the U.S., it's much easier to just use one. But I would never cover the top of a cable box because those get really hot and those have a lot of vent holes. But when you're talking about something like an HDMI switch that probably only has a few vent holes on the side, if any, because it doesn't need it, you should be okay. Just pay attention to it or even get those rubber feet um, that you could put on, stick on the bottom of the, that raises the height to have airflow. You don't even need the sticky ones. You could just get the little rubber bumpers that you just place underneath. That's kind of a good practice. I know people in the AV world do that all the time. They have these like circular feet for their AV equipment that spaces it out for people stacking them and not putting it in racks and stuff like that. So, Hopefully that points you in the right direction for the second question. But the first question was great. You know, definitely good to know about power supplies. And I think if I ever have free time, which I don't, uh, I would love to do just a short little video describing exactly what I uh, just said here, but with, you know, fancy visual examples and stuff like that. So maybe I'll get around to that someday. Well, that's it for this time. If you're a new supporter and you'd like to submit a question, just go to wherever the latest Q&A post is, wherever it is that you support, and post your question there. The way these services work, I can't really filter through older posts. Plus, I really do think it's fun to just scroll through and ask the questions as they pop up. And also, if I ever miss, your, miss any of your questions, please just re-ask. It's never intentional, but I do occasionally sometimes delete stuff in post or anything like that. It's always an accident, so if I ever miss, just re-ask. Anyway, as always, thank you so much to everybody who supports in any way possible because it's you who is keeping all of this stuff alive. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.